Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to episode 141 of the Childless Not by Choice podcast. This is Savella Morgan. My mission, as many of you know, is to recognize and speak to the Childless Not by Choice women and men around the world, reminding you, us, that we can live joyful, relevant, fulfilled, Childless Not by Choice lives. Whether you have children or not, thank you for tuning in. Well, what is today's show about? It's about a triathlete's adventures and adversities into the rapids. Yes, you heard me right. I have the great pleasure to interview one Rob Hutchings. He's author of Downriver Nomad, and you're probably wondering, well, what does this have to do with childlessness? But wait, you will find out. So hang in there with us. I want to, just before we get started, though, thank my Patreon contributors, I want to thank you all for your monthly contributions to the podcast. You know that your contributions help immensely, and I appreciate all that you do on a monthly basis. So, what does a triathlete have to do with Childless Not By Choice and the platform? Let me tell you. Triathlete and marathon swimmer Rob Hutchings takes us on a whirlwind journey from triathlons and his first marathon swim in his own home country of Canada to Ironman competitions across the pond, then down under to Australia and New Zealand, where he embarked on marathon adventures off the beaten track, on land and in the water, which led to his biggest challenge, an unprecedented attempt at swimming the turbulent 256K Clutha River. In Downriver Nomad, Rob shares his story of adventures and adversities, not only in the water, on the race course and off the beaten track, but also his struggles with an alcoholic father and his own unsuccessful path to fatherhood. His is a story of humor, heartbreak, and challenges that will inspire the absolute beginner in adventure sports to the seasoned endurance athlete. Join Rob on his nomadic adventures in triathlon, marathon swimming, and adventure sports. The book itself, packed with hairpin bends, whirlpools, rock dodging, and white water rapids. Rob Hutchings, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I really, I did not know how I was going to enjoy this book or like it. I was like, oh my gosh, a sport (laughs) I don't even know anything about. I don't, you know... I've never thought about it. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to read it because I want to be ready to interview someone who's gone through the childless, not by choice journey, like many of us. And I absolutely enjoyed the book. I loved it. I'm not just saying it. I abs- I read it. I read the whole thing. Downriver Nomad is the name of the book, you guys. It's a triathlete's adventure and adversities in the rapids. There is a link to a lot of his YouTube videos in the show notes, so be sure to check out the different links in there. But I'm going off track already. Let's talk to Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me. And I know it's Sunday in the United States where you are, but down here in New Zealand, we're living in the future. It's already Monday morning. I that is always just amazing to me. I don't know. It's the little things for me, but that to me is just the coolest thing. So it's about quarter to three Sunday afternoon here, which is when I do a lot of my interviews is on a Sunday for me. And mm-hmm. then I get to talk to people, like you said, in the future, it's already Monday morning <laughs> and you're going to be getting ready for work soon and all that stuff. It's pretty cool yeah, how well, our planet works. 
It, it is. Fortunately, I don't have to go to work till 11 and it's only 6.45 a.m., oh, so good. we got plenty of time. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed your book and how you were able to combine your infertility journey with your passion for triathlon. It was beautifully done. Mm-hmm. And I want to just start off like I usually do by jumping in the deep end, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Australia. I struggled with using this question or asking this question first, but you know, let's try it and see what happens. Tell us a little bit about the Australian adoption process and how it is the way it is due to the history of the stolen generation. Yeah. So just for very quickly backstory there, your listeners will probably work out very quickly. I'm not Australian. I'm an Australian citizen because I'm married to an Australian woman. I lived there for 15 years before we both jumped over to New Zealand, where we currently are. So I'm an Australian citizen with a funny accent from Canada. But I met my wife three years after I moved to Australia. I met her in 2005. And about a year after we were together, we decided, yep, we're getting married. We're going to have children. That's what I long thought that I would, would do eventually when I found the right woman. And I definitely did with my wife. About a year after deciding, yes, we're going to try to have children, found out, no, we're not having children the old-fashioned way. So to get into your question, basically, the Australian system is all government-run, which on one end is not a bad thing because it doesn't have the corruption that can often accompany private adoption agencies. But unfortunately, like you know, pretty much every government-run agency, it's a bureaucracy. It takes a very, very long time to get the process done. And the reason it was set up, in my estimation, and I I emphasize this is my own estimation, and of course, having come to that conclusion through experience and talking with friends as well, the stolen generation of the indigenous population of Australia, it didn't fully finish until the 1970s, but the, the very terrible history of it is that when Australia was being settled, they were trying to assimilate the indigenous population of Australia and the church groups. Unfortunately, they decided the best thing to do was to essentially steal children from their parents and raise them as essentially to try to make them just like white people and and, and Christians. And this was going on for a couple of centuries and right up until the 1970s when they finally legally put a stop to it. What that meant was that there's a very bad stigma about adoption in general in Australia, at least on the government end, and a lot of people have a very poor perception of what adoption means. So in my estimation, in order to correct a very real societal problem, what they did was well-intentioned, I do believe, but they swung the pendulum too far in the other direction. And what that meant was they made it way too hard to adopt children. So that's my estimation of it. And, you know, as I read about that, I thought, and like you said, they swung the pendulum the complete opposite direction, which to me, (laughs) a lot like what government does. I mean, you'd think they'd find a happy medium somewhere. (laughs) This isn't unique to adoption, this sort of problem. In in my estimation, if if you recognize a legitimate problem, you know, you say, right, we got a big problem. The pendulum swung way too far in one way before they get it right. And I I can't say they'll ever get it right in adoption. I don't know in Australia, but they swung the pendulum too far in the other direction. And and that's not unique to adoption. And in my estimation, on most societal issues, when you recognize a big one, they overcorrect. And then hopefully at some point, and it usually takes a very long time, they get it, I won't say right, but better than it was in both directions at some point in the future. Yeah, I agree totally with that. Totally. 
So because of the issue with the stolen generation problem in Australia, when you're trying to adopt, Thailand is suggested. Yes. So Australia was a signature of the Hague Convention, which all countries that had the government-run system, it was the International Treaty on Adoption. And there was only a certain number of countries that Australia assigned an international adoption agreement with. And just to, for the quick backstory, for one of the reasons we chose overseas adoption is because in Australia, state by state, there's only a handful, less than half a dozen domestic adoptions per year, which meant the wait list was often 10 to 12 years long for domestic adoption. And we can talk about the reasons for why that is later. But for international adoption, it was meant to be about five years or so. Australia only had signed an international adoption agreement with several countries. There weren't that many. And each one had strict criteria on who was eligible. And one of the biggest ones was the length of our marriage. That was a big roadblock. Like some countries required you had to be married for at least like seven to 10 years. And at that time, my wife and I, we'd only been married for a year or so. Some had religious requirements and we, we didn't formally practice a religion. And there was other little criteria, but we met the criteria for Thailand. And that was at the time, incidentally, the only country we met all the criteria for. And that's where we started. Yeah, and then that, that was harrowing. I mean, the questions they asked, I don't, I can't even imagine the stress because I've not been through that. I've tried adoption twice, but as a single person, they just basically blew me off in both mm. instances. And, and in the same in Australia, like a, a single person, man or woman, can't. I'm 99% sure that's still true. But at the time in 2000, and forgive my faulty memory, I think it was 2008, we started, or it might have been nine, we started this process. 2008, single people could not adopt in Australia. At all. I mean, no questions no, asked. No, no question. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it didn't mm. matter how much money you had, how much income, because at the time I tried to adopt, I was a stockbroker at that point. Mm -hmm. So, and they had already told me get an insurance policy. So I had a huge life insurance policy just in case anything happened to me, you know, after I had adopted a child, but none of that mattered. <laughs> yeah. And it would have been the same in Australia as well. And my understanding is in New Zealand, it's a bit better in New Zealand, but I've aged out of the process. I'm now approaching 47 and I've only been in New Zealand four years, but we, we'd come to terms with it before we moved there. But yeah, in Australia single, you can't adopt. And like I say, Thailand was the only country we were even eligible for consideration based on the length of our marriage at the time. And 47 seems pretty young to age out too. I mean, do they even tell you what age range you can adopt? I think it was the upper end was 46 in Australia. And laws are reasonably similar and this sort of thing in New Zealand. But we haven't looked it into it in the four years we've lived in New Zealand. We've accepted childlessness yeah. after a long battle. Even if age wasn't a factor, I mean, I, I couldn't put, put myself through that process again. It was, it was too much. Right, definitely. And speaking of that, after things with Thailand didn't work out, then you tried Colombia. Yes. Yeah, so we were accepted onto the wait list in Thailand and we were told it would be anywhere between a year to up to two years waiting. And, you know, the process of getting onto that wait list, as I mentioned, a government run bureaucracy on the Australian end, that took more than two years. And you'd think, you know, the social worker visits, health checks, all that stuff, you know, worst case scenario would take several months if you were really committed and getting through it. But no, the, the hoops you jump through takes so long. So we were finally accepted after a very, very, very intrusive social worker visits, et cetera. 
I'll describe more about that shortly, but we were accepted onto the wait list. And then I, we got a letter from the adoption agency. It would have been about a year later. And I opened it with kind of the anticipation of, oh, this might be the letter saying, hey, we're going to get children. And it was a letter saying that Thailand had shut down their inter-country adoption program because of concerns about legitimate, very legitimate concerns about corruption within the program. And on that note, I mean, I'd always, throughout this whole process, I'd, I'd gone back and forth in what I thought was the ethical thing to do about intercountry adoption. Like I thought, you know, is it ethical or is it morally just to, you know, take a child out of their own country and culture and raise them in another? And I always came back to morally justifying it in my mind. It's like, well, there's tens and what, millions of children out there that need love and family. And my wife and I have a lot of love to give. So that's how I kept coming back to saying, yes, I'm comfortable with this. But, you know, as I read that in the book, I wondered, when did Thailand know that there was an issue? Did I mean, did they just find that out? I, I can't believe that that would be the case. I, I honestly couldn't tell you how, you know, why it is they brought that up at that time, because if they didn't know before that something was wrong on their information system, I, I, I can't tell you what led to their decision that yes this is too corrupt we got to shut it down but if they didn't know before that that in itself was a problem mm-hmm. but yeah they just decided it was a problem unfortunately poor timing for us but that's what happened we were then told by the adoption agency in australia i shouldn't call it an agency it's a, a government department yeah we no more options because you know we weren't eligible for the other several countries like ethiopia or india or a few of the other countries that there was an adoption to country agreement with. So for almost exactly two weeks, my wife and I, Tansy, we were shell-shocked. I always just believed that, you know, as a triathlete, one foot in front of the other, you eventually get to the finish line. And that's how I sort of was going through the adoption process. You eventually get there. And for about two weeks, we were shell-shocked and just trying to go through the motions of work and everything else saying, okay, I'm 30-something. You know, this back in that time, I'm 30-something. You know, I'm not going to have kids. And I, I never had my full emotional breakdown. Uh, breakdown's the wrong word. I'll just call it a meltdown. And there were, were a number of them. I mean, I... I didn't go off the rails or, you know, have to stop work or anything, but it was really tough. But I think that for those two weeks, uh, it was numb. I, I just couldn't believe it. We just out of the blue, and this is, again, purely coincidental timing on, our, on for us, out of the blue, we got another call from the adoption agency, or keep calling it agency, it's a department, saying we've literally just signed an agreement. The Australia government had just signed an inter-country adoption agreement with Colombia, and we met the criteria. So you're you're on again, but you got to go through that whole process of you know the social worker visits, and we actually had psychology visits, which previously weren't required for Thailand, and the whole process started from scratch, and we were eligible to adopt from Colombia, and that's what we tried to do. Yeah, and then those trick questions. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? You know, that, uh, page 171 <laughs> with that trick question. <laughs> you know, uh, every time I think about the grilling that potential adoptive parents go through, and I think about, you know, I think about people who have kids naturally, they go mm-hmm. through nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some type of process or protection of the children when they're, mm. as, when it's the adoption process, but I just find the whole process extreme. Uh, outside of even any cultural history of abuse like Australia, you know, as mm. we discussed earlier, so, uh, how did you make sense of, of the grilling, uh, you know, of not being believed? It, well, first, for when we initially started, it was a social worker. 
And I want to be very clear, I have no issue with social workers in general. I just didn't particularly like the particular social worker that we had. Mm-hmm. In my estimation, and after we later talked to other prospective adoptive parents in Australia who had the same social worker, they all seemed to come to the same opinion that he was on a bit of a power trip. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, he ultimately gave us a very favorable report. But my estimation was that he recognized that he had power over us and everything we wanted was in his hands, essentially. So there was the whole questioning of my father had gone off the rails when I was a teenager. His problem started before that, but he really went off the rails when I was a teenager. So there's the whole grilling, both from his end and later, again, when we were trying to adopt from Colombia and also then from a psychologist, which was not previously required from Thailand. So there was the grilling about that. And I I expected it, um, and I don't disagree with the fact that it was, I'll say, necessary. I understood the reasoning why they had to question it. You know, I mean, if there's going to be grandparents in the picture and that sort of thing, they want to make sure they're protecting children, that sort of stuff. I like to think I'm reasonably open, you know, about my story. I mean, A, I wrote a book and told it, and, you know, I'm quite happy to come on, very happy to come on this podcast and tell my story. So I like to think I'm reasonably open, but telling a complete stranger who I didn't get a good vibe from because I had to in order to try to have children, I found, uh, I'll use the word a violation. Uh, it, it was very intrusive. Off putting. <laughs> yeah. But yes. That's, that's a better word, I guess, off putting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so when it came to the psychology, I mean, you mentioned page 171 in my book, I quickly opened it and said, yeah, what was one page 171? And yeah, the multiple choice psychology twisting first, first, the the psychology, I'll just read this. I think it's, it's funny in retrospect, but at the time I was, wow, I was kind of disturbed. But the multiple choice questions were essentially, you know, hundreds and hundreds of ways of asking, are you a wife beater? Are you an alcoholic? Are you a drug addict? Are you likely to commit suicide? And the one particular question that stands out in my mind that just I couldn't believe it was even there was when you commit suicide, and I emphasize it said when, not if, when, not if, who would you prefer to find your body, your spouse, your child, your parents, a friend or a stranger? And when I came to that question, having already been asked hundreds of different ways, am I likely to commit suicide or suffer depression? I, I just couldn't believe they asked me when, not if. And I went up to the psychologist's door and I, like, I, I like to think I'm not timid in any way. Like, I, I don't think I'm timid away, but I but was very timidly knocking on the psychologist's door. You know, I was out in the other room doing this test before my appointment with her. And I just said, look, I, I can't answer this question. And she told me I had to for the test to be accepted. So I ended up choosing a stranger, which I thought was the least bad option. You know, find my body. If according to the question, when I commit suicide, I, I just couldn't believe that that was a question. It blew my mind. And yeah, I was in shock, too. I was like, seriously, when? And then you have to answer the question? Yeah, have to or it won't be accepted. Wow. Unbelievable. The, the things that people who just want what we all would think is normal, you know, mm. want and, and the things that, that we have to go through. And speaking of that, <laughs> the unsolicited questions and suggestions. Oh, of course. Really, the the craziness of it all. It it reminded me of an episode I did. I can't remember the episode number, but I interviewed a woman from Kenya. She Mm -hmm. is the founder of a group called Waiting Wounds. So 
slightly different than those of us who have decided that we will not pursue adopting or having or whatever a child. We've come to the conclusion it's it was not meant to be. She is managing a huge program in Kenya called Waiting Wombs, where many of these women are still hopeful. And that's wonderful. But the reason I bring it up is because she talked about the questions and the, the unsolicited questions and the crazy suggestions of ways that you can, what things you can do to have a baby. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, you know, just for context, I mean, I'm a chiropractor and very much into natural health. I mean, I I don't really like the way some people in the natural health community present themselves. For example, on Instagram, I don't do any of that stuff. I mean, on my social media, the only thing I talk about are, you know, swimming, cycling and running, being a triathlete. I don't use it for anything else. But, you know, I already do yoga and I like to think I eat reasonably well. And, you know, I've think I look after my body reasonably well. But when I would come across different people, you know, and I'd tell them what we're going through, you know, it would be like, oh, you know, you didn't know you were talking to someone network marketing who was had a supplement range. It's like, oh, try this supplement that's only available through my amazing network marketing range. And if you take this supplement, you'll have so many babies, you'll have to have a vasectomy. And that wasn't a one-off. That was more than once. You know, then it was just people really prying in People would say, oh, well, go to my naturopath or go to this or go to... I mean, I did all that. You know, I, I didn't need to be told to do all that. I mean, I tried everything. And, you know, being a swimmer, one of the things I did, and also a cyclist, I mean, I'll, I'll just explain the back context. I mean, basically, the reason my wife and I didn't have children the old-fashioned way was when I was one year old, and I don't remember this. The only reason I know this is because my mom told me. Being an always a very active little kid, I was out in the backyard. My mom was, you know, watching me, and what she said was the phone rang, and she turned her back on me for a moment. And in the time that it took her to answer the phone and say whatever, I tried to climb the white picket fence that was between my yard and the neighbor's yard, and I got a hernia for my efforts in my groin. And many, many years later, found out that the tails on my sperm were not working. The heads were fine, I was told, but the tails didn't work so. Uh, I remember in the doctor's office when I was finally told this at age 33, I think, I made that very, very regrettable joke. I mean, it may seem funny now, but I regretted saying it as soon as I said it. I said, well, this is stupid. A marathon swimmer, swimmers can't swim. So that's why we weren't having children that way. Yeah, I, I remember telling one or two people that and made a decision very quickly not to tell people that, that was the reason, but they all had a supplement or the acupuncture was going to work or I'm a chiropractor and I have many colleagues and they'd be like, oh, well, if I do this particular adjustment, that'll fix it. And again, I tried a lot of these things, sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes willingly. It just got to a point where it's like, okay, if I ever get a chance to live my life over and go through this again, one thing I know for sure is I'm going to be extremely selective about who I tell mm -hmm. I'm going through this with. Because like I say, I, I, I'm a reasonably open guy. I do, you know, I'm a bit of a chatterbox and I, I do tend to once I get comfortable with someone, I'm quite happy to talk about and hear about life issues and stories and everything. But that is, in my mind, a mistake that I made is I was a bit too open about telling people what was happening. You know, they tend to mean well. Most people do. There are some petty people out there. We all know that. But most people mean well. But <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's very few people who I think didn't mean well, except right. for possibly the ones who wanted me to get signed me up for their network marketing line. <laughs> and I will say I don't think they meant well. My actual friends who I had established before this, I'm confident all of them meant well, but the ones who I'd met and, you know, was sort of becoming friends with or just having a conversation with, 
well, who knows? <laughs> Shout out to your profession because I actually went to a chiropractor yesterday. <laughs> Kind of off subject, <laughs> but I feel fabulous. <laughs> so well, I, I'm glad I finally did it. Well, I'm glad you did too. I mean, I, I became a chiropractor because I had a severe back injury as a teenager, lost the use of my arms with a severe middle back injury and was told I'd never be a swimmer again at age 16. And well, at age almost 47, still marathon swimming, just had my most recent one a few weeks ago. So The Easter uh, swim. Yeah. But, that, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so remember, guys, that link is in the show notes to the Easter 2022 swim. So I can't wait to check that out myself. And the Kutha River swim, I put a long version and a short version from YouTube <laughs> on, in the show notes. Because I think the long version is like 53 50. minutes. Yeah, that's correct. I made a homemade documentary of my swim down New Zealand's Clutha River. We can get back to childlessness. I'll just quickly say this. One of the ways I moved on from, you know, accepting childlessness was what I've always been doing was my triathlon and marathon swimming. And when we moved to New Zealand in 2018, I started river swimming. And after I did my first river, which it's called the Waia River. And for your listeners, that was one of the filming sites for Lord of the Rings. I, I don't recall the name of the river in the movie, but the, the main river that was filmed in the, the original Lord of the Rings movie was on the Waia River that I swam down. Then I thought, oh, river swimming is great fun. And I came up with the crazy idea of swimming the second longest river in New Zealand, which is the Clutha. It flows from a very wonderful alpine town called Wanaka to the Pacific. It's the second longest, but by far the biggest river in terms of water volume and current strength. And I came up with the idea of that. And I called, I'm not sure what the title is in North America, but we I called the Harbor Master, the, the people who manage the regional aquatic environments, and mm-hmm. I was told swimming the Clutha would be, an, would be impossible and only an idiot would try it. And I thought, well, I'm that kind of idiot, so I'll try it. And, well, I did. And that's the conclusion of my book, is describing the Clutha River, not only the swim itself, but particularly on the last day about how I was feeling and my reflections that I did in my life, including childlessness. That was very important to me. And swimming rivers made it very apparent that we're not in control of our life. That's one of the things that I did when I was a teenager. I mean, I started triathlon and marathon swimming before my father went off the rails. But as I was finding my feet in the sport, he he really went off the rails. And I felt that by becoming the best triathlete I could be, I was taking control of life. Then, you know, a number of incidents, you know, not just childlessness, but other few hard to deal with incidents that I had in life, um, started to become aware that at best I've got influence over what happens in life. You know, I wasn't really in control. And what I like about river swimming and, you know, childlessness really made this apparent to me because as a triathlete and a marathon swimmer, I mean, you know, you, it's, as I, I think I alluded to before, you know, one foot or one stroke in front of the other, you eventually get there, get to the finish line. Well, five, the five year process of trying to adopt children in Australia was the longest, I'll call it race. I mean, I, I don't mean that literally, but, you know, just as a triathlon analogy, it was the longest endurance event I've ever done by far. And it's the only one that broke me. You know, the only one that caused me to have an absolute meltdown. And I literally had a meltdown in an ultra marathon over childlessness shortly after we pulled the pin on adoption. And I'll come to the reasons we we did that in shortly. But by swimming down these rivers and you realize, you know, the river's in charge here. And just for context, the Clutha River, the flow rate is 600 cubics. And what that means is the amount of water going through it is 600 cubic meters of water per second. 
And what's unique about river swimming as opposed to most other endurance sport is that you don't get to decide when you're doing it necessarily because if there's either what happens in New Zealand a lot is frequent storms. So Clutha averages 600 meter cubic meters of water per second cumics. And three weeks prior, there was a huge flooding event that it went up to 3,200 cumics, and that would have been suicide. And for context, the kayakers stopped kayaking the river at 800 cumics. So uh, I decided, right, if the kayakers stop at 800, that's, you know, for safety considerations, I won't be getting in if it's around there. And it just really highlighted, you know, that I was going with the flow of life. And that's what I imagined as an analogy for river swimming is there's a flow of life. You have a skill set, you do the best you can. And, you know, I have a weird, arguably unpractical skill set for swimming a river because there's a lot to it. You know, ultimately the river was in control, not me. And that was highlighted in adoption and childlessness and highlighted in these rivers. And that's what I hope to tell in my story. You know, (laughs) this is the third time today, third time today that I've heard this. As far oh. <laughs> as you're not in control of your, which which we know, we kind of know, but I'm not sure why this is the third time today <laughs> that I'm hearing this. But I've literally, this is literally the third time today that I'm hearing that you're not in control, no matter how much. And I think I need to hear that because I tend to be a control freak. Well, just as you so eloquently put it, you're not in control. Of, the river is in control when you're. Yeah, swimming. like yeah, and interestingly, like I mean, if you say control freak, like. I had that sense when I was quite young at age 17, I was taking control of my life in an, in an untenable situation of living with an increasingly violent alcoholic. I was taking control of life and I am in no way a control freak. Like, I mean, the only thing I ever wanted to control was essentially having lots of adventures, both in endurance sport and travel, which, you know, I I have done. And I, you know, I wanted to control life in the sense that I have lots of adventures, find lots of love and meet funny and interesting characters and tell stories and hear stories from all over the world. And that's always what I wanted. But I mean, in terms of control, like, I mean, obviously, like every other issue, it can get completely out of balance. And I think like I never wanted to control a partner. I never wanted to control any colleagues. I never, I mean, I no desire for any kind of power whatsoever other than the uh, powering through the rivers and water and on the roads and trails. That's the only power I want. I think a lot of people who tend to try to control, for example, their partners in various ways or control their colleagues and like, you know, get into the abusive situation of control. My estimation, having read about it, studied it, thought about it, over lots of miles in the water and lots of miles on, in my running shoes and bike, I think that they subconsciously have realized they're not in control and they're trying to take back control. And in, in, I like to think in my way of you know, doing triathlons, it was reasonably healthy. But when it gets into controlling people and being abusive towards people, and that's about power and control, it's a lack of control they perceive subconsciously or not. And that's what they're doing. So that's my estimation. And i Emphasize I'm not a psychologist, I'm a chiropractor. I've just I just read it I've read about this stuff and it makes sense to me. It, it does make sense. <laughs> and I I think for my my um regular listener, they know what I mean when I say I'm a control freak because I just want life to be okay. Not not controlling people, but life. And hmm. <laughs> there's no way you can control life. There's well, no in my in my estimation, life is a series of chaotic events mixed with, you know, calm. And that's one of the things I love about river swimming and marathon swimming as I, you know, I happen to have a deep love of the water 
the ocean, lakes, and rivers. And one of my favorite songs of all time, it became popular when I was a teenager, and it's still to this day. I actually wanted to quote it in my book, but I found out you're legally not allowed to quote songs in in books. So yeah, and Garth Brooks never got back to me when I emailed him. I'm sure it was his agent that never got back to me. But the song, The River, beautiful song. And, you know, I've I've always loved it. But I mean, the, the lyrics that I really, really resonate with is, don't you sit up on the shoreline and say you're satisfied, choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. That always resonated to me with as a teenager. And fast forward 30 years, that's what I was literally doing in the Clutha River. His song opens with you know something like, a dream is like a river ever changing as it flows. And the dreamer is just a vessel that must follow where it goes. And through my journey of triathlon, marathon swimming, and lots of things happened before I met my wife. I didn't meet her till a few weeks before I turned 30. And, you know, I was starting to become aware that I'm on this flowing journey, but not in control. And then when we came to this childlessness, it it was so hard to deal with on every level. And then obviously the hardest part was ending up accepting childlessness, but realizing, you know, hey, I have literally no power here. And no matter what I do and no matter how hard I train, no matter how hard I, I'll use the word fight. It wasn't a fight, but, you know, you, you take my meaning. It's, it's just not up to me. And that was hard to accept. That's the part that I'm talking about when I talk about control. It's life. And you said it well. It's a life. How did you say it? life is a series of? <laughs> well, I mean, as far as I can tell, life is inherently chaotic. And I mean, obviously, there's calm waters. And again, I'll come back to rivers. I mean, there's I mean, sections of the Clutha River were extremely calm. And then there was these crazy whitewater rapids, rocks to dodge. And if you hit them, you're in trouble. And sailors say stuff like this, you know, and being an ocean swimmer as well, you know, like life can be like the ocean. You're smooth sailing one moment and you're crashing on the rocks the next Mm -hmm. and you don't see it coming. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially these days on social media, try to give the illusion of having a perfect life. And it's just, I I, I don't, (laughs) that's definitely not true. I mean, that's it. People have, I think a certain percentage of people have always tried to give the illusion that they've been living a perfect life. It's just, easier to project that illusion now in the era of social media, but that's never been true and it never will be true in my estimation. (laughs) I I agree with that. And speaking of that in some way, as we we come near the end here, you know, I found it interesting how you discuss in the book that couples wait in different ways for word on adoption, Mm. you know, and that indeed the stress can split some couples apart. So Mm -hmm. tell us about how the stress of waiting you know, how you guys overcame that possibility of splitting and any tips you can, anyone listening to the audience who may still be trying? For me, I think that I always had a reasonably good way of dealing with stress. I mean, I had a violent alcoholic father as I was finding my feet in triathlon and marathon swimming. And whenever I found, for me, triathlon and marathon swimming was something I did when I was happy. It was something I did when I was sad. It was something I did when I wasn't really feeling much at all. You know, it was, it was this endurance sport gave me a toolbox, so to speak, of how to deal with life. So for me, I always had that disciplined habit of training and racing and competing and doing some adventures. And my wife, she's extremely creative. She's a writer and she was actually, she had published her first book sometime before I wrote mine. And that was what one of the things that inspired me to actually sit down and do it. One of the many things we did was we we traveled. We decided to go to Mongolia of all places. We had a what we thought at the time would be our last kid-free adventure. We wanted to do something that was wildly outside the box 
and adventurous. And we went, I used to call trekking, but since I'd moved to New Zealand, New Zealanders call it tramping, a multi-day trek through Mongolia. So that's the sort of thing that we did was we, we had adventures on our own and we had our creative endeavors and we also had these wacky adventures together. So my wife and I have always prioritized, you know, our together time, of course, but something that we found personally is both of us are like this. We need our solo time and we need our together time. For me, it was all about personally, like uh, on my solo thing, it was all about the marathon swimming and triathlon, Ironman competition and together. It was being creative together and she's more creative than I am. Also just traveling together and we do frequent hikes together, frequent bike rides. And we really got heavily into yoga. We took up yoga. We had been doing yoga before I met her, but we really got heavily into it together. In addition to going on this big hiking journey in Mongolia, we went cycle touring in Thailand and we went to a few yoga retreats in both in Australia and in Thailand. So that's how we did it. There are a number of people, both People I've read about and people I've met personally who, for example, it's not unique to men, but it's I think it's more common with men. They might throw themselves headlong into their work and they'll get their work life out of completely out of balance. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I mean, there are people who do that anyway, but I think a certain number of men who are going through this journey, they think in their mind, it's like, right, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to save lots of money so that when we have kids you know, don't have to think about money so much so that I can spend more time with the kids. But by the time kids come along, if they do at all, we've neglected our partner so much that, okay, there isn't a family at all. And that's, I, I'd really encourage people who might be going through the journey to not do that and be really conscious of that. I mean, yes, it's a great idea to save money, of course, but not at the expense of ever having a family. Again, that's not unique to men. There are women who do that too. This is just what I've read in the stats and judging by conversations that I had with other couples. And there's a certain percentage of women, again, I recognize I'm a man talking about women, so forgive me in advance if I say something I shouldn't. Just This is just my observation and also what I read. And also with the information the adoption agencies gave us, there's, there's a certain percentage, and again, not all women who often tend to retreat into their little worlds and they're, they basically tend to you know almost hide from the world. I think more women tend to be ashamed of the fact that they can't bear children for whatever reason, whether it's from infertility from their own side or infertility from for the man. In my case, it was me that was infertile. And again, I don't think that's conscious. Like, I don't think they literally go around saying, I'm so ashamed I can't have children. I think that's partly societal pressure yes. and again, and again, unconscious or not. And I think there's a certain percentage of women that do tend to retreat. And often that retreat is not just from their friends or family. It's often from their partner as well. And they think, okay, everything will be better once we have children. Mm -hmm. And if the, if the day, day comes where you do have children and just for example, the man has been or woman has been working too hard and neglecting their partner or the woman has or the man has been treated too far and neglected partner. Unfortunately, that's not the best situation. To it's it would be hard to correct your relationship. The added mix of having an adopted child, especially if it's a cross cultural thing, like we tried with inter country adoption, and if it's an older child, for example, you know, not an infant, like maybe you know, however old they might be. I mean, you know, if they're capable of language at the time you adopt them, then you know, there's a whole host of issues you got to deal with there. So if you have if your relationship is not necessarily consciously broken down and you're put in that situation, that's it's easy to fall into that sort of pattern. Like I don't think we did that, but I do remember when I first heard about these potential issues, smugly thinking, well, nothing like that will ever happen to us because I, you know, won't let that happen. And at one time, you know, when we were having a really hard night, 
I think it was after, you know, we found out we weren't going to adopt children from Thailand, you know, before we found out we could potentially adopt from Colombia, which I don't remember if we finished that story. Basically, the reason we didn't end up adopting from Colombia, we were told once that whole process started again and we were accepted and we were, it would be 12 to 18 months before you had allocated children. Almost exactly 12 months in, we were going to be allocated children. And then a, a federal judge in Colombia, again, very rightly cited concerns about the terrible corruption within the system and shut it down. So that left us completely out of options. And I, I would just encourage anyone, if they're thinking or are currently adopting, just really be conscious of making sure you enjoy your non-parent life. Uh, and, you know, really just, you know, whatever it was that drew you to your partner to begin with, make sure that you keep nurturing that. And Be intentional. In yeah. Yeah. And just one thing I, I wanted to bring up before we conclude, I'm, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but is it okay if I just tell the story of that ultra marathon where I had that breakdown? Cause I, yes. Uh, I, I didn't want to give the whole book away, which is why right. there are certain mm-hmm. things I didn't mention. But yes, if you'd like to talk about it, by all means, definitely. There's a lot in the book I haven't given away. I mean, uh, okay. so <laughs> I, I just, just think particularly for your listeners, like yes. this particular that story part. broke my heart. <laughs> mm. Uh, so basically, we'd found out that we weren't going to adopt, as I just said, we weren't going to be adopting from Colombia, and that we were living in Adelaide, which is in South Australia at the time. So we decided very shortly after, this is one of the big mistakes that, that I made, is like we tried to, we had a big upheaval in our life. We tried to change too much too soon after finding out we weren't having children. My wife's parents live in Brisbane, in Queensland, and her sister also lives there, and she has two young young boys, and we thought, okay, we'll be, go be cool aunt and uncle, and I use the word cool very usely because I'm very much not a cool person in any way, shape, or form, and never have, never will be, but that's kind of the what we decided to do, so I sold my chiropractic business, and the process of selling the business was a huge thing. I mean, selling any kind of reasonably successful business can be very stressful in itself, and just as an example, added to that stress, just a few days before the settlement went through, you know, Adelaide is a, you know on the edge of the Simpson Desert, which is you know the Australian outback, so that very very dry climate. We had this freak storm where you had this huge flood, and my X-ray unit there's a hole in the roof that I wasn't even aware of. You know, you'd never know because there's so little rain, and I found my X-ray unit being flooded a few days before the settlement went through. So it was just this total disaster. And then so we decided long before we actually knew that we weren't going to be adopting, I decided I was going to do this ultra marathon in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, which is a short distance outside of Sydney, a beautiful area. So we've very stupidly, you know, I was in a poor, very poor state, but I hadn't dealt with it. Then I decided to sell my business, move to Brisbane, take a job that was there. And rather than having like a weekend trip to do this 100 kilometer, which is approximately 60 mile run through the Blue Mountains in, in New South Wales... We actually went and did this race. I went entered this race en route to moving to Brisbane from Adelaide, which is in itself is stupid. And then two days before I came down with the flu, I was on the start line, completely broken. And I mean, the flu was bad. Selling my business was bad. But I mean, that 
honestly was like 2% of it. 98% of it was now on the start line. I started thinking about never going to be a father. And because I hadn't had time to deal with it, with all the stupid things that I did immediately after, you know, finding out we weren't going to have children adopted from Columbia. You know, I mean, I've been a triathlete and marathon swimmer and, and entering this ultra marathon. I'd never quit a race in my life. And 50 kilometers in, almost exactly halfway in, my body just completely shut down. It just broke down completely. Honestly, like, I mean, I've been in Ironman triathlons and marathon swims were like not going well countless times where, you know, you dig deep and you find the strength to keep going and there was just no chance. And I just had this absolute meltdown at the aid station and these, these very kind volunteers were looking after me and I'm assuming they thought I was having this meltdown because I failed to finish the race. And that was the first time in my racing competitive journey that I honestly couldn't care less about the race. It was all about I was grieving the loss of children that I never even had. You know, the other things, the selling the business and the move and the rest of it was just, like I say, about 2% of, and the flu was just 2% of why I wasn't carrying on. I mean, I I just, there was, there's no reserves left. I had nothing left in me. And that as a triathlete and long distance athlete, that was completely foreign territory and quitting, quitting the adoption process was forced upon me, but, you know, giving up realizing there's no way to get to, I'll use the word metaphorical finish line. That was extremely hard to deal with as an endurance athlete. That amongst a couple other stories were were pretty heartbreaking as I read the book. So I really, I really would encourage anyone that's listening to check out the book, whether you are a, a swimmer or a marathoner or not. You know, honestly, it seems like almost all my episodes this year, and I don't think it was intentional, but they've had a lot to do with health and health and wellness, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. So this is going to fit right in for the, the June 2022 episode. And speaking of that, I did some research on your wife's book, Joyful Eating, mm-hmm. and I wondered if it would be okay <laughs> if I could put a link in the show notes to the book. I was reading, I found it really interesting because she really went there, meaning deep with the mm-hmm. whole emotional eating aspect of food. Yep. And I really, I'm going to have to get a copy of her book too, but I really, really enjoyed what I did find online and what I read mm-hmm. about the book. So hopefully she's okay with me putting that information in the show notes. She will be. And just uh, just on that note, at the risk of very shameless self-promotion, well, wife promotion, Tansy Boggan is her last name. She doesn't share my last name. That book, Joyful Eating, she published that in, if I'm not mistaken, 2019. She has written her first novel. She's actually written, uh, currently writing her third novel, but the bedtime reading novel version of that book is coming out, I believe it's in June or July. There's a little bit of confusion with the publisher at the moment. But the the book is called Weight of a Woman. And it's about a woman going through that, basically the self-help, this book, Joyful Eating, she wrote as a self-help book. But she wanted to get the messages across you know, for someone who might not read a self-help book or might that find that it's heavy reading or just you only have the habit of reading at bedtime. It can be heavy reading at bedtime. So she wanted to write a novel about that. So that's what this book that will be out in June or July from an Australian publisher, Wait a Woman. But interestingly, it'll be out, we're hoping, six to ten months from now. The sequel to that book, the same two characters are in that. She actually wrote a sequel, A Childlessness Journey. I wrote Childlessness Journey in my book, you know, factual, but obviously from a man's perspective. And what she decided to do as a very creative person was she decided to use the two characters she had in that book. And in the sequel, which will be called Tears of a Woman, she wrote a fictional account of what happened with us. I mean, it's 
it, it, it's almost exactly what happened with us, but with fictional characters. So that will be the sequel to that book, and that will be called Tears of War. We're not sure exactly when that's coming out, but we're going to try to get it out as soon as possible. But for those who are interested in the health aspects, Joyful Eating, How to Make Peace with Your Body and Break Free of Diets is her first book. And Weight of a Woman will be out in a few months. Well, if you can keep me posted on her books, mm -hmm. because I do have a list of books in my quote-unquote Childless Not by Choice library on the mm -hmm. Facebook page and on the platform, really. So please do keep me posted, and maybe if she would be willing to, I probably shouldn't say it here on the air, but at some point in the future, maybe we can speak with her in an interview format as well. I would love to. She, she, would, she would love that, I can tell you that, and I'll, I'll put you in contact with her. That sounds fabulous. You guys had me researching raw chocolate, <laughs> crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, she, she even published a children's book just several months ago called Superheroes on the Plate. It's a fun, I won't say nutrition book. It's about encouraging exploratory eating with children. It's not about pushing healthy eating. It's about encouraging kids to have just be creative and explorative on the plate. So her book is, her children's book is called Superheroes on the Plate. I love that. Yeah. Oh, I already have a, a gift in mind for my, my great <laughs> nephew. He's going to be two in yeah. August. So that sounds fabulous. Well, I, I just want to, as we close out here, thank you so very much again for speaking with us, for taking time out of your early morning to speak with us on this episode. And, you know, that final decision to stop the ado adoption process, I felt it deep in my heart. <laughs> but I've got to say again, honestly, the entire book just brought you know, brought out so much emotion as I read it. And that type of writing takes a lot of talent. So I just want to say kudos to you, Rob, and just any last words before we close things out here. Well, I mean, I, I just encourage people to be open about this childlessness community, because as far as I can tell, there's more people who are childless than you might realize. And sometimes it's by choice, sometimes it's not by choice. There's I, th I think being a man, it's very hard for men to talk about it. And that's one of the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you on this podcast is I, I don't think I'm a stereotypical man. Like, I mean, I have a very open relationship with my wife and we don't, we don't have the issue of me shutting down and not wanting to talk about emotion. Okay. But, you know, at the end of the day, I am a boy. So there are male characteristics that I do have and talking about it through it with her and now, you know, talking about it you know, openly with you. It's, it's very therapeutic. Like, I mean, like I hope, obviously, I hope your listeners enjoyed it, but this was great for me talking to you. But in my book, I, I sort of say I've made peace with it. And I don't know that that'll ever be 100% true about being childless, not by choice. You know, my reflections as I was finishing approaching the Pacific in the, in the Clutha River was, you know, reflected over my whole life. But it, it was very obvious to me that being childless was going to be a scar in my heart for my whole life. But I do think that, you know, overall, I'm a very happy person and I have pretty crazy and wacky adventures and just had another one, you know, the marathon swim in Milford Sound over Easter. And then my wife and I went cycle touring for a couple of weeks. You know, we're, we're doing lots of fun things together and, you know, we're very content and happy and we have our writing. I'm just starting my second book and she's on the process of her third novel before the first one is even published. So, <laughs> you know, so we, we, we have all kinds of projects and I, and I wouldn't say that this is just filler, like, okay, we didn't get kids, so we're doing all this stuff. Like, I mean, we had these habits established. And I would say, like, if you don't have something that you're passionate about, 
if children was what you were hoping for and you didn't end up having them for whatever reason. I think one of the key things is finding something you're passionate about. And that could be children related, could be completely unrelated to children. Doesn't matter. Like if you, if, if you're passionate about something, that's going to help you move past it. And whether or not you make full peace with it, or I'm going to say 95% peace with it in my case, you know, because I do tend to get emotional when I really get talking about it. You know, one of, one of the things that some people say to me, I realize I'm rambling now as we're trying to conclude, so shut me up when you <laughs> want okay. me. Um, <laughs> you know, some people, edit, you know, when you meet new people, and like I moved to a new country at age 42, and I'm now almost 47. You know, some people will say, you know, when I meet new people, it's like, the question is not, do you have children? It's like, how many children do you have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when people find out that I don't have children, I mean, sometimes it's a case of, oh, you selfish person, you, know, you should have children. You know, how could you, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm never going to tell my story to someone who comes at me like that. Oh yeah. And occasionally like if I if like, you know, for example, I might have a patient and they're there with their children and you know, the, you know, seven year old might be kicking up a tantrum or something like that. And someone might just inadvertently say to me like, Oh, you're so lucky. You don't have to deal with this crap, you know? <laughs> and, you know, and I say, Oh, geez, I'd love to deal with that crap now and again. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're going through the daily grind and you're in the grocery store and your kid's kicking up a fuss and you feel like punting across the vegetable aisle, you might think, Oh, geez, it'd be easier if I was just here by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just one of those things that one thing that just happened not that long ago was we had an, a, an attempted break in at our office that the door was almost destroyed, but they didn't get in and we had to get a new door. And anyway, the, the girl who had the key, the only key the first day we had a new door, she went off and didn't realize she had the key in her pocket. And my, the other two, myself and the other staff member was there and you know we had to call her and wait for her to come back with the key to lock up and she just said to me very blase and inadvertently she said well i have plans with my kids so i can't be the one to wait for her. you stay mm -hmm. and like i would have offered to stay anyway but it was like it was as if to say well my plans with my children are important you uh, you don't have children so whatever you're planning to do in, in which case was can't be that important. So, and she she didn't think that through, and I don't think she meant it like that. But that's on a day when you're not thinking about childlessness at all. Something like that happens, and you're like, oh god. And yeah. it's things like this that those of us in the childless not by choice community with a platform. And by the way, you now have a platform with this book. You have a platform in the childless not by choice community as well as in your other community. You know, so just know that going forward. But the thing is, when I hear stories like that, I just think about, oh, my gosh, we have so much work to do in society mm. to just, you know, open up people's eyes. And we're all going to stick our feet in our mouths from time to time. But when I hear a story yeah. like that, it's just like, oh, come on. Are we still doing that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best you got. <laughs> yeah. And this has only happened to me once. But, you know because the infertility issue was on my end as the man, right. I, I know of many men personally, and I'm sure there's untold numbers out there who I don't know personally that you know, you know they'll get, particularly from other men, it's like, oh, yeah, you're not a real man. You can't even get your girl pregnant. And, you know, I, I only had that comment once from someone I've only met once in passing. I can't even remember how it came up. So I, I personally haven't had to deal with that. And like that comment wouldn't, phase me because I don't have those macho 
manly, stupid issues. I'm just not, I mean, uh, we use the word blokey down here in Australia and New Zealand. I don't know if we use that word in North America. My language is a bit messed up having lived in five countries. <laughs> yeah, the, that kind of macho attitude I just have never had. I mean, I don't, I don't watch football. I don't watch basketball or rugby down here. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not into that sort of male life, but I know there are a lot of men, whether they're into that sort of blokey nature or not, they do have to deal with those sorts of comments and insinuations, which is very tough. So that's that's worth, even though I personally haven't had to deal with that, it's it's worth mentioning that a great number of men who are in this situation do. Well, you know, I'm sure this is not the way you wanted to, to be a part of this community, but I, I, I can definitely see that you're a great addition and a great help to the community of the Childless Not by Choice globally. And so I really once again want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the book. You guys, you have to read this book. I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not just saying it. I mean, even just, even just to hear about the Mongolian trip, which <laughs> <laughs> we won't give that away. We'll let people, no. anyone, anyone who chooses to read it, just know that the book isn't all about childlessness and pushing the body to the limits. There's a lot of right. crazy, oh my God, how did I get myself into this wacky situation thing? I mean, it's, it's about being a goofball as well. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> and then, then on a sad point, you know, a sad note, the Gibraltar swim. So it's just, mm. this, the book is awesome. And I just, you know, you did a fantastic job. And I just really want to thank you so much for your time today. And to my listeners, thank you guys so very much for tuning in. I hope you got so much out of this. And I know that a lot of you are women. And so definitely, please, you know, make sure your husbands get a listen to this. It's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, Rob, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. You're welcome.